never hear it taught on or preached because it was very Jewish in its nature. Well, today, the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3 are going to qualify very much the same. And as you look on the screen, as you, you kind of look through that and listen at the same time, I'll go ahead and tell you that if you were to just read this once or twice, it would be very confusing. Um, it would be hard to decipher and untangle. What's going on? Who's talking? Is, are there like two or three conversations going on within these eight verses? And the answer is yes. And so it is kind of tough if you were to only read it once or twice. But I contend if you were to read it five, six, ten, fifteen times, you would start to see, oh, I see what Paul is doing. Very Pauline section of scripture. Paul loves to ask questions. I love questions. I find that questions kind of engage my mind and they kind of sharpen my conscience. Hey, how is it with you and the Lord? How's your prayer life right now? Is there anything between you and God? Do you have short accounts? Is there something that's been unconfessed since like Wednesday or Thursday? Just by me asking that, someone here this morning, it should have their conscience sharpened like, oh, wow, I haven't dealt with that. I haven't specifically confessed that between me and God. So Paul loves questions, but watch this. His are not just fabricated, made-up questions. By the time Paul writes this in AD 56, he has taught thousands of times. Twenty-some years he stood and taught in Jewish settings and in Gentile settings and in mixed settings. So he just keeps teaching Bible truth, things that God showed him, specially shown to Paul. And so he knows as he teaches certain truth, the typical answers. I'm sorry, the typical questions that are brought up. Sometimes those questions are literally, no doubt, sitting in a synagogue. Uh, But Paul, if that's true, then what about this? Or maybe not quite so polite. Hey, then what about this? Or maybe even shouting him down for what he taught. Or Paul was like, can I ask you a question after the service? And so Paul by now knows what the typical questions are. And having just taught in Romans chapter 2 some things concerning the Jews... He anticipates questions. He goes ahead and asks the questions before the reader even says them. And then he's going to head into the answer. And what you're going to find in verses 1 through 8 is probably six, five, six, seven different questions. I believe they come under a category of three main types of questions that we're going to be able to put them in. So with that in mind, would you look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse number 1. If you were not here last week, I'll try to make this make sense in a moment. If you were, then you will say, wow, that, this is the obvious follow-up to last week's section where Paul challenged the Jews not to trust their Judaism. So verse 1, Paul anticipates. I know what you're thinking, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Could I add the word then? What's the value of circumcision then? Paul says much in every way. To begin with, Now, by the way, when someone says, what's the advantage? Much advantage in every way. To begin with, you think they're going to give you a long list. Paul doesn't give a list right now. He'll do that later in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 9. Here, he centers on one main thing. Oh, much advantage. What's the advantage of even being a Jew then? What's the point of circumcision then? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the answer to that one. Next set of questions. All right, Paul. What if some were unfaithful? They didn't have faith. They don't have faith. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What if some don't believe? Then doesn't that just do away with God's faithfulness, what he said? Paul answers in verse 4. By no means. In other words, God forbid. Don't ever let that be said. Don't even think that. And in verse 4 continues, Paul says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written in the psalm, Psalm of David, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If anyone tries to judge you, your words prevail, you will be justified. May we always see you as right, never us. So here's the next line of question. It's kind of a little different. Paul seems to take a detour from the two obvious sets of questions, verses 1 through 4, to a new set of questions, verse 5. It's almost as though Paul's like, hey, while we're addressing these things, let's go ahead and hit the obvious next one, verse 5. Here's their objection. But if our unrighteousness serves, serves a purpose, 
if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Isn't that true? If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then isn't God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul says, I speak in a human way. That's a man-made objection. Very common one. Verse 6. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Here's another one. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If my lies make his truth abound and more obvious and seen as greater, why in the world is God going to condemn me as a sinner and judge me? And furthermore, oh, here they're really going to, they're going to dig in at Paul's teaching because they know his reputation. And why not just do evil? I added the word just. And why not do evil that good may come? Paul says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Did you get a feel for the passage? See how it would be very confusing. You'd have to read it a few times to kind of get the flow of was Paul actually saying something or is he making an argument? And by the way, these are not straw dummy arguments where Paul's just setting them up. I honestly believe what we're getting ready to look at this morning are arguments and, and questions that Paul had wrestled with himself. I think as he's laying for three days in, in the city of Damascus where he can't eat or drink and he just met Jesus on the road to Damascus, saw this bright light, he's blinded. I think he's having to rethink his whole theology and I have, I have no doubt all three main categories of questions we're going to look at today are ones that Paul would have had to work through. What's What's the questions? What's the cat? What are they coming from? What are these objections? Write this down if you would. In last week's message, Paul had told his audience, do not put your trust in Judaism. Why? Because having the law of God and being familiar with the things of Scripture will not save you. The Jews had the law, but just having and possessing the law will not save them. Secondly, he's going to say, you being circumcised as great as it is and as obedient as it is, You being circumcised even on the eighth day and having your children, your male children circumcised, that's not going to save you. So being circumcised is not going to save you. And furthermore, as we finished last week, even being children of Abraham, physical descendants of Abraham, that's not going to save you. So possessing the Bible, having a good working knowledge of it, knowing facts about God, that's not going to save you. Being circumcised is not going to save you. Being a physical descendant of Abraham is not going to save you. So here's the point. Number one, question. Does it even pay to be a Jew? Does it even pay to be a Jew? What's the point of it all? And the Jews are a very proud people with a tremendous heritage. I don't think anybody, any group of people in the world have a heritage quite like the nation of Israel. But can we be honest for a second? This is a great, great question. And I realize this morning I'm speaking probably to a predominant, if not 100% Gentile audience. And it's easy for us to say, hey, Brother Jeff, can't we just skip this section? I'm telling you, if you skip this section, you are going to be missing out on a large portion of Scripture. This is going to help us tie it all together. This is a legitimate question. Okay, Paul, if all those things don't save us, then what advantage is it to be a Jew? Because it's hard to be a Jew. I'm getting ready to say something. Not talking about the country, but the nation of people of Israel, the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jews, they've had a rough, rough time. These words very aptly describe their existence as a nation. Slavery. I don't have slavery in my past. Slavery. They've had it multiple times. We know about Egypt, but other times. Hardship. You say, well, we here in America, in our 240-some years, we've had some hard times, I know, but nothing like what they've had. Almost constant warfare, slander. You're like, well, we got the ugly American syndrome around the world. I understand that, but nothing like what the Jews have had to put up with. Constantly being slandered. Why? Because they are hated. People hate them. And they don't just keep it inside. It results in persecution. I'm going to give you three numbers John MacArthur offers. Number one, one million. You say, what is that? That's how many Jews were killed by the Romans in A.D. 70 under the leadership of General Titus. One million. We've never had anything like that. Forty-five years after that, 115 A.D., another 600,000 Jewish males were killed by the Romans. Why? Because some Jews in other parts of the empire were causing some some uproar and stirring up some trouble. They brought in the army and killed 600,000 Jewish males and took many, many more into slavery, like another 100,000 into slavery. We've never had that. 
And of course, we skip a bunch, I mean a lot, but if we just look back at the 1940s, we realize that another 6 million Jews were murdered as part of the Holocaust by the Nazi regime. We've never had anything like that. So this is a legitimate question. If these things in our heritage and us being Jew, if they don't save us, then what's the point? Is there even any advantage? Should we just walk away from it? Paul's answer is in verse 2. Look at it. What's the advantage? Much in every way to begin with. Again, you think Paul's going to give a long list, but he mainly centers on one, not all-encompassing, but one main encompassing advantage. And he uses this word, watch. To begin with, Paul says, the Jews were entrusted, watch, not just given, but were entrusted with the oracles. The oracles of God. That's a word that points to the plural of the idea of the logos. Logos meaning the word. They were were entrusted with the plural idea of the word of God. The words of God. Here's the point. You want to know what your advantage is? You were given the words of God when all the other nations were not given the words of God. Your main advantage is that you have the Old Testament, which is a covenant presented to you. That's your advantage. You have a major advantage. Now, here's what I want us to do very quickly. I want us to pan out in our mind. I want us to look broadly, and then we'll come back and look a little more specifically. Look at verse 2, because I'm going to make a point. Paul says, what's the advantage? Much in every way. Broad point. Ready? Like it or not, and I know a lot of people say, I don't like that, I don't believe in it. Okay, well, you're sticking your head in the sand. Here's a fact. Like it or not, some people have advantages in life. Is that true? Some people have advantage. You hear that and you're thinking, oh yeah, those who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They have wealthy parents or they have wealthy family somewhere. They have an inheritance waiting for them or a family business that's lucrative and they automatically have a spot in it and they're just going to do really, really well. I was eating a sandwich Friday in downtown Greenville eating a like a steamer bagel or something like that. And there was these kids that, that were very, very young, and I could tell they, they'd been to the ball game, and they were talking about how they were going to fly out and they were going to go skiing, and they were going to do this and this and this to, I think, Colorado or something like that. And I'm thinking, wow, they have some means. Uh, and they're on their own, you know, like 20 years old and just kind of going to fly down to Greenville. Then we're going to fly out there, and we're going to, I'm thinking, that's nice. Can I tell you something? Some people have an advantage in life, and if that's what you think of, yeah, the silver spoon, that is nothing. It is something, but comparatively, it is nothing because, write this down, the greatest advantages in life are spiritual. The greatest advantages in life are spiritual advantages, and it begins with access to the Word of God. It begins, so I want to say it again. You say, yeah, some people have an advantage, and they they, they just have an easy, no, they don't. The greatest advantage in the whole scheme of things, who are those who have spiritual blessings and the main blessings are those who have access to the Word of God? I'm looking at a group of people right now this morning. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. You either have directly connected to your body right now or within inches of you direct access to the Word of God. The greatest blessings are spiritual and it begins with access to the Word of God. Whoever has access to the Word of God is blessed. Some have multiple exposures. Some have several copies. How many of you have more than five copies of the Bible at your house? Some have multiple copies. Some have heard the word of God audibly from a parent. Some never hear it. Some, they have a parent, maybe not all of it, but they tell them constantly principles of Scripture. Or they have a friend or a co-worker or a random person God sends in their life. Or they go to a church. By the way, not all churches preach the Bible. But some go to a church and the Bible is being taught to them or it's on a screen. Literally, it's up there on the screen. Or they go to the little small groups and someone has studied in order to teach them the Bible. Can I tell you something? That is a major advantage in life. Would you look on the screen, Deuteronomy Let's go back to the Jews now. Deuteronomy chapter 5. The Bible says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, because Paul uses this word oracles. What is meant there? Well, it's the words of God, right? But watch verse 1 of, of Deuteronomy 5. Moses summoned all Israel and said unto them, Catch this, watch it. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that, that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Did you catch that? Hear it, learn it, do it. 
What Paul has in mind when he uses the word oracles is not just the words, but the commandments of God. He's wanting the Jews to understand. Paul's saying this, hey Jews, you are very blessed by God because you have the word of God. But it's not just blessing to be thrown away. You are blessed, privileged. They're like, yes, we're privileged. But Paul says with that privilege comes a responsibility. And with that responsibility comes a duty. There's a reason God gave you the Bible. You say, Brother Jeff, you're talking about Jews today. But I'm going to ask you to internalize it and to apply it to your life as the Holy Spirit prompts you. Why did God give the Jews the Bible? Write this down. They saw themselves as privileged, but Paul wanted them to see your special choice by God was for special duty. God gave them the word of God. Why? So that they would hear it. So they would believe it. So they would obey it. This is a major one I'm getting ready to say. I want you to hear the word of God. I want you to learn it. I want you to believe it. I want you to obey it. I want you to take its prophecies, what it says about who the Christ is. I want you to learn that and let it point you to the Christ. And then once you know who the Christ is, here's the Jew's job. Go tell the rest of the world what the Bible says about who the Christ is and what he has done. God gave you the word of God for a purpose. Not just to put you on a pedestal. Not just so that you're privileged. You are now responsible. There's a problem with that, though. The Jews that Paul is writing to here in 2,000 years ago, the main problem is, watch, they claimed to believe the commandments and the messages of the Bible, but they were disobedient. Last week we looked at this. At this Paul says to the Jews, hey, have you been preaching to people they shouldn't steal, but you steal? Have you been telling people they shouldn't commit adultery, but you commit adultery? And as I confess to you this morning, have you been telling people not to have a divided heart while you have a divided heart? That's hypocritical. You can't do that. So the Jews stand here like, oh yeah, we're well informed about large portions of the scripture. We just don't obey it. And here's the other problem. They had allowed years of tradition. Catch what I'm saying. This is important. Years of tradition. By the way, I'm not against tradition. Tradition is not of itself a bad thing except when this happens. The rabbis had taught traditions of the Jews. And they took some passive scripture and they reached these conclusions that were not always accurate. So they have these, these teachings of the rabbis and the Jews had put them way up on a pedestal. And the actual words of God, the Bible, the Old Testament, they had way down here. And here's what happened. It got so bad that God himself came to his own. The Bible says Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. God in the flesh comes to the Jews and rather than using all the Old Testament signs to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, they end up rejecting him and crucifying him. So they have the Bible, they don't obey it, and they don't let it point them to who the obvious Christ is. How does that happen? Tradition over scripture. Can I tell you guys something? I want to strongly encourage you. I mean this. Don't ever let me or anyone else that you have a respect for as a Bible teacher, don't let our words that are separate from scripture ever even be in the same ballpark in your mind as valued as that which is clearly from the word of God. Don't ever do that. From time to time, I'm going to offer you my opinion. I think this, and I think it's right to do that. And that's probably a good idea to stay away from that. And you ought to busy yourself doing that. But when the Bible says something very clearly, it is way up there, and my opinion is way down there. It's worth about two cents. All right? They had reached a point where what the rabbi said was valued way higher than the Word of God itself. Now look again at verse number 1, chapter 3. Verse number one, as we close out this idea. So is there even any advantage to being a Jew? And Paul asked the same question a separate way. And I want to make a very quick point. And we'll move on to number two after that. Look at the end of verse one. Or what's the value of circumcision? So here's the question. Okay, if, watch this. If our circumcision doesn't save us, then do we even need to do it? Do we even need to emphasize it? Help me out. I want a little quick feedback. If you were here last week, it was very subtle. It was very brief. At the end of the message... I reread last week's passage and I kind of changed some words. I, I warned you I was changing them because I wanted to show an application to us today who are in the church. And I said that circumcision for the Jew was like this for Christians. What is it? I'm hearing it louder. Baptism. So here they're asking the question, hey Paul, if our circumcision doesn't save us, is there any point to keep on emphasizing Emphasizing circumcision. Here's what Paul is saying. Yes, there's much advantage to it. Keep doing it. Why? If it's not going to save us, no, it's not. 
Will outward circumcision save a Jew? No. Will water baptism save a Gentile from their sins? Will it wash away their sins? Absolutely not. Then why emphasize it? Here's why. Because the outward act of circumcision is an is an outward sign of faith in God, but not just any kind of faith. It's the kind of faith that says, God, I'm going to obey you. It's almost this attitude. Lord, I don't know why you want this done, but I believe you, and my faith is the kind of faith that's going to obey you. And so if you say do this, I'm going to do it, and I'll do it to my kids, and they'll do it to their kids after them. And so, Lord, we're going to do this circumcision thing. Why? Because we believe you, and we want to obey you. Now, Christian, could you imagine brand-new Christian or a Christian who's been saved for a while, and they say, oh, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. And they learn, Jesus says, now that you're saved, I want you to go public with baptism and let everyone know and go through the symbolic act of baptism. Oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Why not? I'm a little scared of water. Or I'm nervous and I'm shy and I don't want to go public in front of people. I'm just going to kind of be a secret agent. I'm going to be a secret. I'm going to be a monument. I'm just going to kind of be a private Christian. Here's what that person is saying without saying it exactly. Here's what they're saying. Just like the Jew, if they refuse circumcision, saying, Lord, I love the blessings of being your people. I'm not going to obey you, though. The Christian who refuses baptism is saying, I receive Jesus as my Savior, but you're not my Lord because I know that you told me as Lord to be baptized, but I'm not going to receive you as Lord. I only take you as Savior. Something's not right. I would question, is that person, have they even received Christ as Savior? Because I think almost every time in the New Testament when you hear those two concepts about Jesus together, Lord and Savior, it is, I think, I don't want to say for certain, I think it's always in that order, Lord and Savior. You receive him as Lord and Savior, knowing he will be the Lord of my life. So what's baptism? It's the first step of obedience. So if a person says, hey, I'm a Christian, Jesus is my Savior, I'm thankful for what he did on the cross, I want all the blessings of heaven, but I'm just not going to go public, I'm, I'm ashamed of Jesus. Baptism is the first step of, obe- of obedience in the Christian life. Question number two, would you look with me quickly at verse number three and four? What if some were unfaithful? So let's look at the second category. Does Jewish unbelief nullify God's promises? This is a great question. This is one that Paul would have thought through himself and wrestled with and asked the Lord for the answer about. Verses 3 and 4 in Romans 3 is like a little microcosm of chapter 9, 10, and 11. Before I delve into that, I want to read a sample. This literally is just a sample of Scripture. Isaiah 44, you'll find it on the screen. Listen as I read. Just a sample. Often in the Old Testament. Isaiah's version of one of the times says, But now here, O Jacob, Jacob was the grandson of Abraham who became the namesake of the whole nation of Israel because his name is changed to Israel. And Jacob there is speaking of not only Jacob the man, but the whole nation. Isaiah the prophet says, Hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, another name that the Bible gives to the nation of Israel. Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will, yes, this is again put in context, if you go away from me, I will punish you and your land will get dry and your crops won't produce and it's going to be difficult. But if you'll come back to me and I'll always have this plan for you. Verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. Here's promises to the Jew. And my blessings on your descendants. Watch verse 4, talking about the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, the nation. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by the flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, implying I'm the Lord's. And he'll name himself by the name of Israel. Did you catch that? All through, all through the Old Testament, there are these promises. So as we come down back to Romans, Chapter 3, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Here's the problem. Would you write down the problem? I think you have that on your handout. The problem is the Old Testament was full of promises made to the descendants of Abraham. You will be blessed. You're going to be blessed. And their blessings are often directly connected to the Messiah when he comes. Now here's the tough part. I'm going to ask you to really, really think. Watch this. 
Old Testament many times. Genesis 12, and it just keeps on going throughout. We just read one. Jews, you're chosen. You're blessed. You are going to be blessed. You are go- God is saying you are going to be blessed. And it's particularly tied to this Messiah, this Christ when he comes, this king that they're looking for. When he comes, you're going to be blessed. Now here, does that not present a problem? Think, 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 think. Say, what's the problem? Jesus of Nazareth is a real man, a historical figure that we preach is the Messiah. So the Jews are looking for this Messiah. We say Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the son of Mary. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ. We say he's not only that, he's much more than that. But here's the Jewish dilemma. Hold on. If he's the Christ, supposedly, we Jews have not accepted him. We reject him. So that throws them into a dilemma. Either, it appears... Jesus is not the real Messiah. We were right in rejecting him and we continue to look for another. Or if he is the Messiah and we are not putting our faith in him, we have rejected him and we are not receiving the blessings because the fact is the nation of Israel is not in a blessed time right now. Well, then that leads to the second conclusion. God must have lied. Their unfaithfulness. One, apparently Jesus isn't the Messiah. Or secondly, God's promises are of no effect. God is a liar. Apparently, God made all these big promises to the nation of Israel. I'm going to bless you through the Messiah. And the Messiah came. They don't receive him. These unsaved, these unbelieving Jews will die and end up going to hell. So here's what it looks like. God was too weak to carry through on his promises. Or God was cruel in giving them this false hope in a Messiah they don't even end up, re- end up receiving. That's quite a dilemma. What would you tell someone? I want to ask you. If a Jew came up and said, hey, wait a minute. We have Bible says we're going to be blessed and it's attached to the Messiah. We agree. Say, absolutely, that's right. You all say that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Well, we don't accept him. So what does that mean? Either he isn't the Messiah or the promises made to us are of no effect. And it kind of throws us into the dilemma. Well, we're thinking, yeah, but Jesus is the Messiah. And they say, well, apparently not because we're not being blessed and we don't accept him. What's your answer? Here's the answer Paul gives, verse number four. By no means. Paul's answer? Here's the answer you get. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, when God's word conflicts with man's word, God is always accurate and true. Don't believe what man says. Paul's answer is this. Jesus is the Messiah, just as God said. Well, then doesn't that mean that his promises to the nation of Israel are of no effect? Here's Paul's answer. God hasn't lied to Abraham because not all physical descendants of Abraham are true heirs of the eternal blessings. We looked at chapter 2 last week. Look at chapter 2 again in your Bible. So that's Paul's answer. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but we don't accept him. Right, here's why. Not all Jews, not all physical descendants of Abraham are actual true Jews who are going to get in on the eternal blessings as true heirs of Abraham. Verse 28 of chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. I want you to look also at chapter 9. I told you that chapter 3 is a little microcosm of what's to come a little later in chapter 9, 10, 11. Verse 6 of chapter 9. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, but we're not being saved. Where are the blessings? God's word has failed. We've missed it somewhere. No, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Again, not all physical descendants of Abraham are the true eternal heirs of the blessings promised to Abraham. God is truthful. Can I take just a moment to apply that? Say, Brother Jeff, this is great. It sounds very theological. I'm not being edified. I want you to learn a quick, quick point, and we're going to keep moving. There was a time in the Jewish life that these Christians and Paul himself had to grapple with these seeming contradictions. God promised this, but it doesn't look like it. But God said this, but the circumstances say something else. If that has never happened to you, be ready, it's coming. 
How many of you have been in a point in your Christianity where what God says doesn't seem to match what you're experiencing? Raise your hand. I, my hand is up. I have experienced that. If you haven't been there, I promise you it is coming. You say, what do we do? I'm going to encourage you. You had better dig your roots deep in this truth. When God says something, those circumstances and others and life says something else, God is true. He is a God of veracity. He is dependable. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. You better dig your roots down in the light because when you get to the dark, you'll bail out on that truth and you'll be in a real quandary. Because here's what I know. When it's all said and done, God will be seen as true. Somebody here this morning, you're saying, well, my circumstances, God promised in Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. I feel like God has left me, and I really, I can't, you, you talked about short accounts, I can't point to any known sin in my life, and I don't even know, I can't sense God, I miss him. Hang in there, God will be seen as true. He may be putting you through a test. But when it's all, when all the information comes in, because we are missing information, when it all comes in, God will be seen as true. Verse 5 through 8, here's the third question. This one has several versions of it within these four verses. But I think ultimately it boils down to this category. Ready? Does the end justify the means? Does the end justify the means? Raise your hand if you've heard that question before. Raise your hand if you've had to grapple with that. You say, yeah, Jeff, what's the answer to that? I can't tell you the answer on every scenario. I'm going to give you the answer what Paul gives on this scenario. So here's the question again. Does the end justify the means? Before we look at it spiritually and contextually here, let me throw out a hypothetical. You ready? I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you. Here it comes. Imagine. Really imagine. There's a private group of researchers and they have a lot of money, and they have a lot of power. They secretly kidnap random people, various ages. They need all kinds of ages to do their work. So what do they do with them? They hold them in an underground bunker, and they run tests on them for the rest of their life, however long that life may last. You say, what happens? In almost all cases, this testing, they again, snatch them. The family doesn't know what happened. They're never on the radar again. They're just gone, not sure, but they're down in this underground bunker in some foreign land or unpopulated state. And down in this bunker, they're having tests run on them, and these tests result, picture it, in years and years of gruesome, horrific, torturous pain. Pain that results in dismemberment, grotesque, just unsightly, strange-looking mutations and growths. I mean, they're losing appendages, they're losing limbs, and yet they're growing strange things as a result of what's being pumped into them or what's being done to them. And often, death eventually occurs. But, after decades of research, they end up finding some effective treatments to dreaded diseases that's going to help mankind. And they're going to come out with techniques of how to treat diseases and medicines that have been perfected and honed and got the right amount, not too much, not too little. And people are going to say, how did you guys figure out that that actually did? Don't worry about that. Just enjoy the benefits of our discoveries. Could you picture it? Here's my question. Was it worth it? Was that worth it? Furthermore, I want to ask you, is it right? Remember, the people they kidnapped and that were tortured and had tests, maybe it was how much pain can one person take before they pass out. Ooh, age group. Oh, okay, there's another age group. Let's run tests on them. Ooh, are females different than males? Oh, what about people that are of this and this, you know, nationality? Let's run all kinds of tests. And they just have to go over these over and over and over. Here's all I would ask you. Remember, that was those people's one chance at life. Was it worth it? But there's this good that occurred. They found these remedies. You say, well, I got to tell you, if it ends up helping my loved one, I'm all for it. But I would ask you to flip the coin over. What if it was your loved one that was kidnapped? And you say, well, then that changes the whole equation, right? Verse 5 through 8, there's a whole shift in the argument that is taking place. 
Paul is answering very clear arguments based off what he had just taught at the end of chapter 2. And now I'm going to give my opinion here. It's almost as though Paul's attitude is, hey, while we're talking about these things, I'm going to go ahead and answer some questions that I know always come up in my teaching. Let's go ahead and deal with it now. And he throws it out. And so there's this odd shift. We have reputations. Paul has his. I have a reputation. You have a reputation. Paul has his reputation. And in verses 5 through 8, in fact, I don't know if we can get that. Yeah, we've got it on screen. Let me read that again. Look at it carefully. But if our righteous, our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Their condemnation is just. Here's what Paul does. He's anticipating the argument. Here's what Paul says. I know how I teach on grace. And I know how some people interpret my teaching on grace. Watch. God in eternity past. Or say just shortly after creation. Tells the angelic world. I'm a gracious God. That's, that's fabulous. That's wonderful. What is grace? I don't know. But God is gracious. Oh, no, no, here's what grace is. That's where I do good things for those who don't deserve it, those who haven't earned it. In fact, I'm a merciful God. That's great. What's mercy? Mercy is when someone has sinned against me and I don't give them what they deserve. So God says he's merciful and says he's gracious, but how will we ever really know that he's gracious and merciful? So God allowed some things to happen that ends up proving he is extremely merciful and extremely gracious and I am part of that process and so Paul understands the argument that follows that people take his teaching on grace and how he shows how God magnifies his grace and his mercy by forgiving sin and so they hear that argument and they end up twisting it on him Paul teaches that God is a gracious God he's a merciful God How do we know he is? He actually forgives people of their sin. That leads to a problem. Well, then if that's the case, then we should blank. So, Jeff, what's the answer here? I want to share, just to kind of hone in the discussion, a personal testimony. I hope hope you understand it. I'm going to tell you the absolute truth. You won't know it to be truth. This is me. This is my experience. What I'm telling you is not a passage of Scripture. I'm telling you my experience that I have found to be truth. You say, all right, lay it on us. What is it? It may sound strange, but I can honestly attest from personal experience, catch this, some of the sweetest times I have ever had with the Lord followed and were in direct connection with some of my most sinful times of life. Say that again. Some of the sweetest times in my life I've ever had with the Lord followed and were in direct connection with some of the most sinful times of life. You say, can you elaborate? Yes. Some of those most sinful times of my life have actually resulted, watch this, the end, is, does the end justify the means? Some of the most sinful times in my life have actually resulted, ended, in me having a greater understanding of God. Maybe something I knew here in my head because I'd read it here and it's in me, but now because of these most sinful times, I know it even greater. You say, like what? That God really is merciful, that God is long-suffering, that God is kind, that God is gracious. I mean, I really, really know it. I don't just know it in my head. I find out from personal experience, God, you really are merciful. You really are gracious, but it doesn't stop. That then turns into this, me thanking him for his 
mercy and grace and long-suffering and kindness. And not only that, not only, Lord, thank you for that, but I'm now praising God for his mercy and grace and long-suffering and kindness, and the list goes on. I'm praising him for it, and if I could add one more thing, now all of a sudden I'm more confident as I go out and tell people, someone who says, but I don't know if the Lord can, can forgive me. I've done a lot of bad things, and I can tell them, no, listen, I promise you, I found out he does forgive us of all of those things. It is awesome. My Witness goes stronger and more confident. Did you catch that? I know by saying that there's at least two responses in the room. Here's one. All right. Tell Jeff we need a deacon's meeting after service. All right. And I can picture it now. Hand on shoulder. Brother Jeff, we appreciate your zeal. And we even understand it. Get what you're saying. But we got young people in here. And we got new Christians. And we got some folks who aren't even Christians yet. And that's all well and good what you're saying. In fact, we've been through it too. But that's better just kept to yourself. Some people are going to hear that and they're going to misconstrue it. And here's the other response. Here they come. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me get this straight. That whole string of events that starts with some of the most sinful times in your life, that string of events eventually, if I heard you correctly, leads to four things. Greater knowledge, you actually know God better, genuine thankfulness to the Lord, genuine praise of God, and a stronger witness for God. Hey, sounds like more and grosser sin in the life is the way to go. And here's what they would think. Jeff, those are four of the very things that you hope we accomplish each Sunday. You want us to, to know God, thank Him, praise Him, and get ready and charged up to go out and tell everybody God will do the same thing for them. More and grosser sin. Hey, doing an okay job on Sunday, but it sounds like a lot of sin during the week does it better. So that's our new message. Go live a vile, sinful life so that God's grace and kindness and mercifulness and long-suffering are experienced firsthand so you can know him in that way better and praise him and thank him and then you can really tell everybody, look, I killed five people this week. Whatever you're doing, God will forgive you of that. It's great. You say, uh, yeah, what is the answer to that? Who's right? My answer, and I think Paul's answer is this. Why do we do that? Say, why do we do what? Why don't we just take God at his word? You say, what would we learn if we just took God at his word? Here's what we would know. Here's the first thing. God hates sin. Just let God, just let God be God and let the Bible say what it clearly says. God hates sin. But, here's the rest of the story. Not if, but when we sin, here's the amazing thing. God, in his wisdom and his power, he hates sin, but in his wisdom and his power, he's not only able to forgive our sin, but he's able to do it in such a way that he is glorified even amid our sin and over our sin. And I just told you the truth. God hates sin, but God can work even amid sin where it doesn't taint him and it actually glorifies his grace. And mercy and long-suffering and kindness. Now here's my question. Why can't we leave it at that? We're not very good spiritual detectives, I, I think. I encourage you to be a spiritual detective. But I find that we're not very good at it. We're too human. Here's what we do. We take a few factual clues. We've got this clue, this clue, and this one. And don't have that one, but we got this one. And we take a few factual clues. And when we're missing something, here's what we do. We just arbitrarily fill in the gap. Some people call it systematic theology. I'm not against systematic theology. Just be careful that you always keep passages in context. Because we fill it in with good old-fashioned human logic. Here's what we do. I'm telling you, I promise you, here's what we do. We see A, B, and D, and we assume, uh, I see A, B, I see where that's headed, I see where it ends. I know what C is. Is C in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible, but I know what it is. Okay. Or here's another one. We see A, B, C, obviously I can tell where it's headed. Well, then D must be this. And we reach a conclusion. Guys, we do it in a lot of things. I'm going to put something on the screen. Let's take a little test. Ready? Let's take a, take a little test. It's just a simple game, fact or fiction. 
I'll put something on the screen, and you say fact or fiction. Fact or fiction, God is the creator who made all things. Fact. Boy, y'all good. One out of one. God is the creator who made all things. Number two, God knows all things even before they happen. Fact. Very good. Two out of two. Number three, or we could say C. Here it comes. God made both Lucifer and Adam and knew beforehand they would both sin. That was weak. God's the creator. Yes. God knows all things before it happens. Yes. God made Lucifer and Adam and knew they would sin. Fact or fiction? Fact. Hmm. God's the creator, made everything, knows everything before it even happens, made Lucifer and Adam knowing they would both sin. Next, God is thus the author and creator of sin. Wrong. Fiction. Wrong. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, does that make sense to my human brain? Absolutely. People hear Paul preach about grace and how our sin, in a strange way, it can kind of make God's grace look like well, he really is gracious. Look at the type of people he's even letting enter into heaven. How's it, how can he do that? I thought he can't have any sin into heaven. He hates sin. Yeah, but he kind of he dealt with their sin. But still, look how gracious. And throughout eternity, we're going to be what's called trophies of grace. So we reach this conclusion. That... Seems very logical, but we end up with a wrong conclusion if we say that God is the author and creator of sin. Here's why we know from the Bible God is not the author, even though it looks like it. You say, Jeff, what's the answer? Here's the answer. You ready? We see through a glass that is muted, and we are missing some major pieces of information. Have you ever seen those blocks that are like glass, but they're muted? And you can make a whole wall, and you can see people and movement on the other side. And you can see a lot. Ooh, that one's tall. That one's shorter. Are they fighting over there? You see all kinds of things, but you're missing some key piece of information. Here's the key. God sees everything clearly. So you say, what do we need to do? Here's what we need to do. God doesn't give us all piece of information. So I'm going to encourage you. Find out what God says clearly and dig your Roots deeply in there. And when God doesn't say something clearly, you can form your opinions. That's fine. But if your opinions go against the clear teaching of Scripture, your opinion was wrong. Maybe your opinion doesn't go against the clear teaching of Scripture. And maybe you kind of build a life standard or a principle off of that. That's fine. But you can't go imposing that on someone else. That would be your thing. What we can preach publicly and passionately is the clear things the Bible says, which I return again. Look at your last note that you wrote. Here's what we know. God hates Sin. God hates sin. So what do I need to do? I need to learn what sin is, what God describes as sin as the Bible, and don't do it. It's real simple. God hates sin. Learn what sin is. Don't do it. But, Jeff, we all have sinned. Right, here's the good part. Not if, but when we sin, God is still faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he can do it in such a way that he even turns that whole process to his ultimate glory. So we step back and we say, okay, let me, let me get this straight. So is it okay for us to have lives full of sin? For a good purpose, we're going to show how, what, how wicked a person God lets into heaven. And he'll really be magnified. Wrong. Don't wallow in sin. Sinning intentionally and, and making light of sin and lowering the bar of righteousness is never the right answer. Would you very quickly look back at verse 5? Look back at verse 5. Here's another slight little version. Paul says, but if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? God's unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Can I interpret that very quickly? Here's what, here's what the, the theoretical argument is saying. Hold on, hold on, time out. Okay, wait, Watch. God's grace is magnified even over my sin, true, and God's truthfulness is more clear when it's placed beside our untruthfulness. Sometimes we tell bald-faced lies. God never does that. Sometimes we say things by accident. That's not what, you really said it, I promise, it's on tape. I did say that. I promise that's not what I meant. 
Okay? God never does that. Or we say things and things change. The conditions change and we end up mistaken. I said I'm going to be there at 2.30. I don't make it till 5. Hey, I really meant to be there at 2.30. Something changed. Never happens with God. Or sometimes we just intentionally deceive people. God never does that. So here's the argument. Hey, God's righteousness almost needs our unrighteousness to show how good it is. So here's the Jewish argument. Ready? Isn't our sin kind of serving a good purpose? And if it is, how can God judge our Jewish sin? You know what Paul says? Your thinking is so corrupt. First of all, don't even act like you're trying to sin in hopes it's going to help God out. You sin because you love your sin. Number two, if God can't judge your unrighteousness and your lies, then he can't judge the Gentiles of all of their sin either. Don't twist God. Don't try to put God in a little box. Well, hey, all we're really doing is in the end glorifying all these attributes of God. He can't judge us in the end. And there's a lot of people who believe that. That is not a made-up argument. My last thought for the conclusion is verse 8. Look at it very quickly. Why not do evil that good may come? Hey, Paul, I've heard you teach and preach before. That's the natural conclusion. Paul says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and then he says, their condemnation is just. Can I tell you something? If Paul were here this morning and someone tried to offer that, well, why don't we just commit sin on purpose and just take advantage? I'll just claim 1 John 1, 9 in the morning and I'll just wallow in sin. You know what Paul says? You make light of sin, you're probably not a Christian. Don't ever, Paul would say, don't ever take my teaching on the grace of God and the eternal security of salvation. We can never lose it once we have it. I can never lose it. Well, then I'm going to go out and live any old way I want to. If that's your attitude, you're probably not a Christian. If you're making light of sin, You probably have no spiritual life. You don't have the life of God in you. And your condemnation is coming and your condemnation is just. I conclude with this thought. Big picture again. Let's pan back out. Say it out loud when you think of it. Paul said there was one major advantage the Jews had. What was it? They had access to the word of God. And that is great. Can I leave you with this thought this morning? You here today have more advantages than they had in the first century after Christ. You say, why is that? Because you, who here has a copy of the Bible with them? Would you hold it up? If it's on your phone and you didn't bring a paper cut, if it's on your phone, that still counts. Or your tablet, whatever it is. Look around. And we've already earlier acknowledged that many of us have multiple copies. I have like several in my office right down there. If you don't have one, we'll get you one. Right? Some of you are like, man, I paid $30 for this. Or I paid $70 for this. This is so cheap. Do you know why we have this and they didn't? Because there was this thing that was invented around 1500 called the printing press that I contend is one of the five greatest inventions in the history of the world that changed the world. They didn't have an individual copy. Something else I want to show you. Would you find the end of Malachi? Real quick, those of you who have your Bible, I just found it right there. You see that? This is what they would have had at some synagogues, this section. They didn't have all of that. You see that? They didn't have the New Testament, and I'll go further. They didn't even have the Holy Spirit. I don't, can't explain it, but the Holy Spirit is on earth ministering in a unique way today that, frankly, I believe, I'm telling you this morning, you live in the best place and the best time of any civilization of people that has ever lived in this world. Graceview. I mean, 2017, South Carolina, Anderson sitting here today. You have the greatest spiritual blessings that anyone has ever had in the history of the world. Why? Because you have access not only to a Bible, but you have access to the truth of the Word of God explained to you. Here's my last thought. If you fail to take advantage of what the scripture says, then you of all people will be most miserable throughout, throughout eternity in hell because you rejected the great blessings of God and snubbed your nose at it and said, I love my sin or I'm too lazy or I don't want to get my Bible out or I don't want to pay attention when somebody's explaining the truth I need to hear for eternity. You will be sorry. Paul says, you have the oracles I'm telling you this morning, you have the Old and New Testament in your own language, an individual copy with the Holy Spirit to convict you in your heart of what it says. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed.
I go back to something I said earlier. Here's a fact. We don't have to wonder and analyze. Here's a fact from the scripture, not from me. Here it is. God hates sin. The Bible says God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. God's very nature is opposed to sin. That's why when Lucifer sinned, he had to be banished from heaven. God will not allow any sin into heaven. That's a fact. Further than that, not only will God not let a sinful person go to heaven, but God must judge and punish their sin. And that sin will... I'm listening to you say, Jeff, this wasn't really a salvation message. I understand that, but I know that salvation is very, very simple. At the end of the day, it's understanding what I'm getting ready to tell you. God must, not only can, he must punish all sin. And he will do it in one of two ways. Either you here this morning will spend eternity separated from God. What the Bible says in a place called hell, it is eternal torments. You say, well, is that the only option? There is another the coming weeks we're going to learn how God in his wisdom and power and love dealt with your sin on the cross of Jesus Christ as he was crucified on purpose knowing what was coming came to earth to take all of your sin and he paid the price he was separated from God he died on a cross so that all of us can go to heaven so here's the bad news all of us have sinned God hates sin and will not let anyone into heaven with sin the good news God's already paid for your sin on the cross and if you'll ask his son to forgive you God promises if you're here this morning you say brother Jeff I kind of know a lot about the Bible wonderful if you're here and you say brother Jeff I do have a copy of scripture but boy it would just be great if the promises that were made to the nation of Israel could only apply to me then I would really have something can I tell you something the promises in the New Testament apply directly to you hear these words God so loved the world you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever there's the promise that includes all of us here, here it comes you say this wasn't a salvation message it's this simple whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life Romans chapter 10 says whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved those promises are made to anyone here today who will put your faith and trust in Christ if you're here and you say look Jeff I I would love to put my faith in Christ but I don't really know how to do it could someone talk with me? I'm going to invite you in just a moment. Settle that. Settle that. We can have someone show you from Scripture exactly how to receive the Lord as your Savior. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Anyone here this morning? Say, Jeff, God's prodding my heart right now. Things are not good between me and God. I am not ready to face Him. And I have no idea when I will leave this world, but I know it's coming. I want to know that I can receive Jesus as my Savior. But I'm not there yet. Would you pray for me? Anybody like that this morning? Would you raise your hand very quickly? Anyone here this morning? I did not see any hands. So just before we sing this morning, can I talk to us as Christians? Very simple, very straightforward. I began this message by confessing something that had been going on in me for probably the last 30, 40, 50 hours. Let me just say simply, God hates sin. God hates it. Hear that? God hates sin. It is never okay to commit sin. It's never okay to allow sin to stay. If I could say it this way, there's no such thing as small sin. You say, well, mine's small or it's private. There's no such thing as small or private sin. It's come between you and God. It is grieving God. It will cause you pain, I promise you. Small seeds, small seeds produce large crops. That's a simple principle. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, Be not deceived. Can I tell you this morning? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. 
Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh, that's sin, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall reap life everlasting. God hates sin. I'm just wondering, is there a Christian this morning, as we sing in a moment, you say, Brother Jeff, I just need to get some things right, just like you did before the service started. It's not small. It's going to be a whole crop of things that I don't even know the end of it yet. And I want to stop it before it gets there. And I just need to get my heart right. And something's going on. It's going to come between me and the Lord. I have a divided heart this morning. Father, I pray that your people will respond. Lord, I know this has been an unusual message. Lord, I ask you, I ask you again. I ask you before, I ask you again, Lord, just apply these principles. I know we've talked about Jews today. So, Lord, let us not just have a greater understanding and connectivity of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will bring some truths and individually apply them to us so that we, Grace View, this morning will keep very short accounts between us and you. And Lord, if anyone needs to respond, Lord, if they just need to come pray alone, let them do that. Lord, if they want to just talk with you and confess there in the, in the seat, that is fine. Lord, you just talk to us as individuals and let no one leave with anything between you and them this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Would you stand?